If you have your Bibles, Habakkuk chapter 2, Habakkuk chapter 2. I want to read this verse for two reasons, uh, maybe three reasons. One, I want to see if you know where Habakkuk is. Um, Number two, a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago, uh, Stephen, our pastor at our uh, Milton campus, Stone Creek, he said that in 23 years preaching that he had never read Habakkuk. And so I'm not trying to let that happen to me, okay? So that's reason number two. And then reason number three is because I think you're gonna see tonight that this teaches you a great leadership lesson that anybody who leads anything needs to know. Habakkuk chapter two, verse two. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. I want for you to know that leaders do that. Leaders write the vision, they make it plain so that he who reads it may run. The reason that certain organizations or companies or ideas never get traction is because the people in that organization or who are following that leader have no idea where they are going or why they're going there. There's no vision. But what leaders do is they make the vision plain. They write it on tablets so that he who reads it may run. And for the last 11 weeks, that's exactly what we've been doing at Elevate City Church. If you remember, 11 weeks ago, we rolled out this X multiply vision in eager anticipation of the 2000 year anniversary of Jesus' great commission mandate. We want to multiply disciple makers to change the world. 10 years, 10 initiatives, one big idea, multiply disciple makers to change the world. See the great commission of Jesus fulfilled in our generation. And if you remember, 11 weeks ago, we rolled this thing out for the very first time. And there was epic cinematic videos. One, I was like on top of a, of a building, drones flying around. We gave you vision guidebooks. There's now been, after tonight, 11 X Multiply sermons. There will soon be an X Multiply website where 10 unique videos describing every initiative will live. We will have a tracker that will track our progress throughout the next 10 years. There have been nights of prayer and worship trying to soak and saturate this vision into us as a church. We've had small group questions to dialogue and process what the Lord is doing in this community as we set pace for the next 10 years. The vision has been clear, put in front of you so that he who reads it may run. And this is what it is. This is what we're gonna be about. We wrote a letter describing it. We said that this is what we want to focus on. This is what we wanna run after. This is who we wanna become. That, like if you're inviting friends, you know what you're inviting your friends into. And when you're praying about your church, you know what you're praying about, amen? Your alarms better be set for 10, 10. AM, PM, whenever, so that you can pray for these 10 years, these 10 different initiatives. And we've wanted this to not just be our vision, but your vision, something that saturates in your heart, something that you catch, this wild, audacious passion for running after, that you would feel like Jesus was standing with you on that mountain saying, go and make disciples of all nations. Spend your life running after this, chasing after this. When we give, we're giving towards this. When we show up every week, we know that we're talking about this at least for the next 10 years. The sermons are planned. It's these big ideas that over the next 10 years, we pray that in 2033, this could be said of our church. 
to know Jesus, follow Jesus, and lead others to do the same is our greatest passion. In eager anticipation of the 2,000 year anniversary of the Great Commission, we've multiplied. Let me hear you say multiplied. multiplied. We've become a nonstop house of prayer who truly believes his presence is better than life. We've ignited a disciple-making movement with a culture of deep spiritual formation across every stage of life that's full of grace and truth. Who's your three is now common language. Our cities have heard about the beauty of Jesus as evidenced by the 344,869 bold gospel conversations. We've celebrated 365 baptisms every year as Jesus adds to our number day by day those who are being saved. Fully dependent on the spirit of Jesus, darkness is being pushed back and the kingdom of light is advancing. People are being loved, the poor are being served and the prisoners are being set free in Jesus' name. We've gone to the nations. We've engaged five unreached people groups, planted five international churches and sent 100 mission trips around the globe. We've impacted the now gen with over 100,000 kids and students experiencing Jesus at camp. We've equipped the saints for ministry with over 100 future ministry leaders trained through our leadership development program. We've become a movement of 10 campuses and church plants that are Jesus-centered, discipleship-driven, and transformation-focused houses of worship. And we've generously given whatever it takes to see Jesus' great commission realized and to live into a story way bigger than ourselves. We have songs that tell our story, some scars from the journey, but so much joy in our hearts because we know that Jesus is infinitely worth it. Amen? Yeah, can we celebrate that? That's the kind of church that we're becoming. Listen, you guys are too concerned about money tonight. I'm gonna need you to get a little more excited about the kingdom, okay? I, I, I just think back on the last 10 weeks that we spent together, the nights where we had people spontaneously get baptized in the week after week after week that we soaked this floor with water because people are meeting Jesus. The nights where we threw out seeds and said that we're gonna be crazy farmers. The nights where we prayed for the nations and begged God to move. The second week of, of this whole thing where I preached the shortest sermon I'd ever preached. And then we prayed for the rest of the service. I promise that's not happening tonight. Okay, that is not happening tonight. I think about this journey that we've gone on to try to get the great commission into our soul, into our bones, into our DNA. And so let me say this, that if you've come on this journey with us for the last 11 weeks, if you've listened to sermons, if this is your home, if you've caught a vision for the Great Commission, if you read that letter, if you flip through the vision guidebook, if you think about giving your life to that for the next 10 years, and that doesn't like awake something on your insides and make you wanna run through a brick wall, like and take your wallet and set it on fire, okay? Then you might need to go to a different church. Like, I'm just being dead honest, okay? Like, totally serious. Like, if you're new, we'll give you a pass, okay? But for those of you who've been here, like, I, I just really wanna say this. There is something that is really demonic, if I could be honest, and really broken about having a church on every corner. And the thing that's so broken about that is that what it does is it turns Christians into consumers of their preference of content as opposed to participants in the kingdom of God at large. And that's a whole nother sermon for another time that I don't have to get into tonight. But if there was any good thing about living in the deep South where there is a church on every single corner, it's that you and I get the luxury of being a part of a church that we know we can be passionate about, believe in, and wanna sacrificially be generous with. 
And so I just want to really, really encourage you that if you look at that vision for your life and it doesn't unlock something on your insides, then two things, find a different church or check your pulse. Because this is a beautiful vision of the kingdom that I want to invite you to run after together with joy and cheerfulness. God says he loves a cheerful giver. The word is hapalus, a hilarious giver. Somebody who's just like, manically laughing as they give their all to see his kingdom come. Now, as I've already said this many times before, Elevate City, you have crushed the game when it comes to generosity. When I look back over the last three years of Elevate City Church, you guys have beat every projection that we had. You have, you've met every need that we've presented before you. Like, I'm, I'm, I said it last week, but literally sometimes I'm like, how do these people pay their bills? Like there's just this spirit of generosity that God has grown in this church, like literally from the beginning, other than like month four, where I was like, what have we done, okay? Like month four, I was like, Haddon, stop eating, no more eating, okay? <laughs> but other than that, there's just been this legitimate spirit of just like insane generosity that's in this church, but I'm here to tell you tonight that if we want to see that happen, and if we wanna step into what God has next for us, we're gonna to have to see it multiplied. We're gonna to have to see generosity multiplied in this house. Second Corinthians 8, 7. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So Paul says that as you excel, as you grow in, abound in, multiply in all of these things. So in our case, as we excel or multiply in disciple making and prayer and going to the nations and reaching the now gen and loving the poor and caring about the least of these, as we multiply in pursuing his presence, as we multiply Jesus-centered, discipleship-driven, transformation-focused houses of worship, multiply generosity too. Excel in this act of grace also. So... Here's the time where I just wanna to be totally real with you guys. We are at a crossroads moment in the life of Elevate City Church. And I don't want anybody to panic. You're gonna hear much more about this next week. Like, I just want for you to know this wasn't strategic, okay? This is the worst time to talk about giving. Uh, like November, like the last two weeks in November are like the slum of the church world, okay? Everybody's like, you, weather's changing and like holidays are happening. And if you were ever wanting to do a big vision pitch, this isn't the time to do it. But this is the moment that we find ourselves at. And we're just at a crossroads. We're gonna talk about this so much more next week. You need to put next week on your calendar. We're gonna be having a discussion with some of our pastors on staff just about practically what X multiply means for our church and how to really flesh this out and take it from theology and vision to practicality in everyday life and just answer some questions about where we go from here. But we are standing at a very important intersection. Some of you know this, but um, First Baptist Church, Sandy Springs, where we've been meeting, has actually ended up merging with another church. And so our timeline to continue to meet here is actually coming to an end. We will no longer be able to meet in this space and in this facility starting January 1. Now, that gives me a little bit of panic in my soul, but the truth is, is we've been here before. We've been at a crossroads where we didn't know where we were gonna go or what we were going to do, and we had to trust the Lord. We had to put our eyes on him, amen? And he's faithful to bring us this far, and I believe that he'll be faithful to take us where he's gonna take us next. And we're gonna be talking about that a lot next week, but here's what I wanna tell you tonight, that the decisions that we make will be largely impacted 
by the way that we multiply generosity in this house. That's just real life. That's not me coercing anybody. That's not me trying to lead anybody. That's just me telling you in all honesty, where we go from here will be very impacted by the reality of generosity multiplying in this house. And I'm good with it, okay? I'm good with wherever the story leads, wherever we end up, whatever step God calls us to take because faithfulness is all that we can control. God takes care of the rest. He builds his church. We don't, amen? But I want to be the kind of people who are generous, who have crazy faith, and who believe that Jesus is going to build his church in our generation. So with that being said, just to kind of like raise the stakes on this message, let me try to preach the best generosity message that I can. I want to give you some high-level thoughts on just money as a whole. Uh, I tend to agree with John Wesley, who says you should make all you can, you should save all you can, and you should give all you can. I think those three pursuits are great pursuits in life. Proverbs 13, says this, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. You ever seen uh, somebody driving a Corvette with one of those bumper stickers that says, spending my kid's inheritance? Y'all ever seen that? Okay, well, the Bible says a good man doesn't have that bumper sticker, okay? A good man, a wise man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. So make your paper, boo-boo. Build your business, start a company, leave a legacy for your children's children. That is a good, godly, wise thing. First Timothy 5.8 says it like this. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and was worse than an unbeliever. Listen, people who don't take caring for their families very seriously, the man who does not work does not eat, and the man who does not provide for his family, God says is worse than an unbeliever. God is against lazy Christians. He's not for or advocating for people who just sit back passively, don't care about money at all, are unwise, don't manage stewardship. No, like care for your family, build a legacy. All of that thing, all of that is good and wise according to the scriptures. I'm not up here telling you today to not provide for your family or to not be a smart steward of your money or not to, to not invest. I'm, I don't want you to hear me say any of those things tonight, okay? I want for you to know that our God is the high king of heaven and he sits on a throne in a palace with very ornate jewels and precious metals that was designed and curated by the chief archangel Joanna, okay? So Joanna Gaines joke, y'all gotta catch up, okay? Everyone's so stressed about money. It's okay, breathe. Heaven is glorious. It's nice, I've read the architectural plans in Revelation. It's luxurious up there, okay? God is not slumming it in a starter home. And so I want for you to know that, that God is not anti-money, he's not anti-possessions or wealth or any of those things. So. I don't want for you to feel guilty tonight. I mean, you look at people like Abraham and David and Solomon and Job and the Magi and Joseph of Arimathea and Theophilus and Lydia and Barnabas. They are all wealthy people, blessed by God, used by God in his story. I don't want for you to feel guilty tonight. Like, I'm just gonna be totally real with y'all. I like nice things. I've got expensive taste, okay? I like going out to restaurants. I love having um, like extravagant experiences. I, this morning, drank my coffee out of a nice Yeti mug, and I have a foot massager under my desk, okay? Just confessing. I do. 
And every now and again, I like to treat myself to a massage. So judge away, all right? So I'm not up here trying to tell you that I have, you know, given every dime that I have away to the poor. Like, that is not what I'm advocating for tonight. I don't want to create a spirit of guilt or condemnation. I don't want for you to feel guilty. I want for you to feel generous. I want for you to feel in your heart of hearts like you are actually a generous person. Because that's what the gospel turns Jesus' people into. When you receive the spirit of God and the blood of Jesus washes over you and he opens your eyes to see beyond the plains of this earth and to see into eternity. When he pulls the veil back on this temporary 80 years that we're living on this planet, what he inputs in you is a heart for eternity, a heart for heaven, a heart for the things of heaven. And that turns you into a generous person. When you see what has been done for you in Jesus, it turns you into a generous person. So tonight, I don't want for you to feel guilty. I want for you to feel generous. So let me ask you tonight, do you feel generous? Because if you're a Jesus person, you should. You really should. You should feel in your heart of hearts like I have had something rewired on my insides where I love being generous. Like, is there something in you that is literally so transcendent and transformative, so counterculture and otherworldly where you would get up here and say the kinds of things that Grant said? Because I think that he could say them tonight with a level of confidence and boldness because he feels like a generous person. And so it's not awkward or uncomfortable because he feels really generous. Do you? I want you to. God's word wants you to. Hopefully tonight you will. I want to fundamentally change how you see generosity so that you see it as a gift to get to give. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 says this, We want for you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. The Macedonian churches uh, are in a famine and they're experiencing governmental oppression. And so the churches at Ma Macedonia, they gave money, but what Paul called it was grace. Did you catch that? The same word for, for grace um, is being used for money here. I want for you to know about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. They gave money, but God saw it as grace. What would happen tonight if something fundamentally changed in the way that you saw giving and that you didn't see that you were giving from a bank account, but you saw that you were giving from a grace account? That you had been gifted, given something by God that you did not earn or deserve or even work for, but that every good and perfect gift comes from above. Every talent that you have, every mind that you have to be able to make money, every skill or talent was actually given to you by God for his glory. It's actually input into your grace account so that you could give grace away to others. That's the way that the churches at Macedonia see it. Verse two, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. The Bible says that the churches at Macedonia were faced with a math problem. Let me show you the math problem. It's gonna come up on the screen. Abundance of joy plus extreme poverty. If you were faced with that math problem, what do you think the answer to the equation would be? An abundance of joy plus extreme poverty, like maybe like moderate generosity, Maybe like deferred tithing. Maybe like prayers. Acts of service. I've got all of this joy in my heart from what God has done for me, but I've got 
extreme poverty. What does it equal? The Bible says that for the churches of Macedonia, an abundance of joy plus extreme poverty equaled an overflowing wealth of generosity. They gave even when it hurt. They gave from a point of poverty, not from a point of excess. It says that they gave beyond their means. And this is the reality, is that the joy that we receive in the gospel is always greater than what we could ever give. The joy, if you really know what you get in Jesus, then you know that you can never outgive God. You can never give him back more than he has given you in his son. Can I tell you tonight what you have been given in Jesus? In Jesus, you have been given access to the Father. You've been given adoption into a family, a friend that sticks closer than a brother, peace with the Almighty, salvation from wrath, escape from the fires of hell, forgiveness of sin, no condemnation, a blank slate, total redemption, all spiritual blessing, a wedding banquet, fullness of joy, a call to ministry, yes to every promise, the Holy Spirit, spiritual gifts, guaranteed inheritance, the power of God, a kingdom that can't be shaken, and everlasting life we have been given more than we could ever imagine or begin to fathom in Jesus and the joy of that should compel us to freely give I just want to give you a cherry on top Romans 820 Romans 832 he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things on the other side of eternity for those who catch a vision for this. There will not be a want in your heart in heaven. There will not be anything. God will generously, graciously give us all things. Second Corinthians chapter eight, verse three, for they gave according to their means as I can testify and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. I love this part, okay? This just shows you that the church at Corinth has gone crazy, okay? Uh, Corinth is a lot like Vegas. What happens in Corinth? So y'all have been there. Corinth is crazy, okay? This is like generosity gone crazy, bananas. They are giving beyond what they can. They ain't pressured to give. Like so oftentimes, you feel in a moment like this, like somebody's like begging you to give, like please give, like get in on giving. The Corinthian church is begging for the opportunity to give. They're like, please, like, I want to. I want to take part in this. Like, do not take away the blessing of being a blessing. That's the mindset of the Corinthian church. They're going, I am not going to have alligator arms at the banquet table of faith. You ever met somebody with some alligator arms? You go out to eat with them, and the server comes up, and is it like, is it one check or is it two? And they just sit in there like waiting to see if you're gonna say something. And they're not reaching for the check. They're like kind of playing it off, keeping conversation going. And you're like, I guess it's one. Not the Corinthian church. They are begging, reaching first. I want to be the one who gets to participate in relieving the saints. I know that it is a blessing to be able to give. I don't want anybody to take that blessing away. Acts chapter 20, verse 35, Jesus said, remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, you probably heard that before. Maybe you doubt it. 
But this is what I love. I love it when science starts to catch up to the words of Jesus. So there is a book, a very popular book uh, right now that's called The Generosity Paradox. The Generosity Paradox. If you want to just, you know, trial some of these thoughts, just get into just secular scientific belief on generosity, read this. It's a massive case study on the effects and the power of generosity. And it's all about giving we receive, grasping we lose. And the whole book tells this story that it is more blessed scientifically to give than to receive. Don't you love it when science catches up with Jesus? Like here we are in 2023 and they're going, guess what guys? You're not happy when you just acquire everything for yourself. It's actually better if you'll like bless other people. Christians should be going, yeah, 2,000 years. She's been saying that. <laughs> and just now the science community seems to be catching up. You know, verse uh, five says this, and this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. One of the reasons that I think a lot of us struggle to give and to participate in this act of grace is because we've never fully given ourselves to the Lord. Like at the end of the day, so much of giving comes down to an issue of discipleship, of allegiance, of apprenticeship, of really knowing Jesus in his heart, of really following Jesus in his teachings, of elevating Jesus above like a nice friend who did something for you and elevating him to be your rabbi, your king, your Messiah, your Lord, your master. It's an issue of discipleship. If God doesn't have all of you, if he doesn't have your wallet, if he doesn't have your money, this entire X multiply vision revolves around the great commission. Jesus' eternal vision for making disciples who make disciples. That's what we're running after over these next 10 years. Becoming people who are deeply devoted, fully formed, spirit empowered, gospel equipped, disciples who make disciples. Not shallow, baby, infant Christians. Not people who are just trying to figure this faith thing out. We want to grow into a community who are fully formed, audacious disciples of Jesus. And I just want for you to know tonight that there is quite possibly nothing in all of the world that opposes discipleship to Jesus like money. There will be no enemy in your life or in my life for allegiance to Jesus like money. Matthew chapter six, verse 19 says it like this. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one. Let me say no one. Say it again. Say no one. Say me included. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. We live in a day and age where every message you get is telling you that getting more money and possessing more things is going to make you more happy and it is a lie from the pit of hell. 
It is a lie from the pit of hell. A lie that if you do not recognize and guard your soul against, that lie will invade your heart, it will grab your wallet, and it will suffocate your spirit. John 10.10 says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Like talking about money is the deep end. I get that. Talking about money takes the conversations into enemy territory, behind enemy lines, which is why it feels so tense for so many of you tonight. Christians aren't the only ones with messages. The world has a message. And you may hear one or two sermons every couple of year, years about money in church, but you are hearing hundreds of messages about money from the world every single day. So I hear people say it, and you might be feeling it in your heart right now. Oh, I knew it. People say this. The church, all they want is my money. And so they boycott the church because they go, all the church wants is my money. Let me ask you tonight, what do you think Instagram wants from you? What do you think Amazon wants from you? What do you think Peloton wants from you? What do you think free people wants from you? What do you think Top Tick wants from you? They want your money. I'm here to tell you tonight, they want your money. Instagram's not trying to just connect you with your best friends. They want your money. <laughs> and I want for you to know that Yeti isn't just passionate about you being in the great outdoors. They want your money. And Nike doesn't want you to just do it. They want you to just spend it. <laughs> in Disneyland, they don't want you to experience the happiest place on earth. They want you to experience the most expensive place on earth. <laughs> they want your money. Like just wake up for two seconds and realize that there is an entire empire in Silicon Valley that is carefully orchestrating and organizing calculated and curated algorithms that play on your unique sense of desires and your cute little color palettes and these very trendy items that get delivered to you and only you in your newsfeed. You're like thinking about something that you might want and then it appears. You say something that somebody asks, oh, those are cute shoes, and then they appear. Do you know why? Because they want your money. And they're willing to take your soul to get it. They're willing to lead you down a path of materialism and consumerism and exhaust you and overwork you and turn you into a workaholic who works more hours than should ever be humanly possible, all in a pursuit of acquire, accomplish. When Jesus is going, I've got abundance right over here. I've got another way to be human that steadies your soul in the midst of the chaos, that wants something for you, not from you, and that wants to use generosity as a safeguard in your life. Our main rival to loving God is loving money. Hear me say that tonight. For you to experience the fullness of great commission formation, Jesus is going to have to transform your wallet too. He's gonna to have to get into your budget and into your bank account, into your spending, and really have a conversation about the way that your finances are leading you and the person that it's forming you into. I want for you to know that it is possible for God to have your money and not have your heart, but it is impossible for God to have your heart and not have your money. Where your love is, there your 
treasure will be. So if God doesn't have your money, I just, I really wonder if he has your heart. If, um, this was an interesting thought, somebody, question somebody asked me that I can't stop thinking about. If Saul, when he persecuted Christians, when he went around into towns to try to figure out who the Christians were, to haul them off to jail, to have them martyred and stoned, to try to silence the way, to put out the movement. If, if Saul audited your bank account, would he arrest you for being a Christian? What does your bank account say that you are about? What does it say that you care about most? What does it say that you believe? What does it say that you prioritize? Don't miss this part tonight. Two of the greatest apologetics that will demonstrate to the world the legitimacy of what we believe is sexual fidelity and financial generosity. To be stingy with our bodies and promiscuous with our wallets. The early Christian community was known for radical giving. Diagnotis was not a Christian, but he was an opponent of Christianity. And he was listing the things that made, him, made it so frustrating to try and refute what he thought was the Christian heresy. And this is what he writes in the first century. He says, they share their table with all, but not their bed with all. They are poor and make many rich. They are short of everything and yet have plenty of things. You see, unlike this consumeristic, barbaric, over-sexualized culture of the Roman Empire, these Christians were promiscuous with their money, not their bodies. They shared their possessions in a proportion that the materialistic culture of Rome had never seen before. The radical generosity was an irrefutable apologetic for first century Christians. It didn't make sense. When they looked in and they go, oh, wow, they keep their bodies to themselves, but they share everything else. They're financially generous, but sexually pure. It caught the attention of the first century. And I just want to tell you tonight, ladies, that if you're dating a guy who does not value these two things, you should break up with him tonight. And I want to say it like this. If he doesn't care about the bride of Christ, that may be a good indicator of how he's going to treat his bride someday, too. Is that a bit heavy-handed? One of the greatest apologetics that we could ever speak to the world is to be financially generous, to be sexually pure. It would scream to the world that we actually believe the things that we say that we believe because the world is screaming at you the opposite. The world is telling you, give away with your body, have sex with anything that moves, and your money, keep it to yourself. Hoard it, make more, hunker down, hold on, keep it for yourself. And when we adopt a lifestyle of the reverse that says, I will not give my body away because it is actually a temple of the living God, and I will be sacrificially generous with my money, seeking not to store up for myself treasures on earth, but to store up for myself treasures in heaven, it communicates that we actually believe in the reality of those two things in those two places, the reality of a soul, the reality of the afterlife. The Knights of Templar used to be baptized into their order. And when they were, they uh, held their swords out of the water. And they did this as to say, God, you can have me except for this 
one thing that I do evil things with, that I kill people with. So take all of me, but not this. And it's, it's silly, it's crazy to think about that, that scene, knowing the theology of baptism that we have in this church. This, no, baptism is to take all of me. How silly is it to hold a sword out of the water, and yet isn't this what we do with our wallets? You say, Jesus, you can have me, you can take me into the afterlife, but don't touch my money. True discipleship doesn't just hold on to Jesus. It lets go of the world. Let me tell you why this is so good for you. Don't you know that the worst day in all of human history is when humanity thought God was holding out on them? When mankind failed to believe that God was ultimately generous and that his way was ultimately better and Adam and Eve believed the lie about God over the truth thought that God was holding out on them that there was something more for them over in this one tree of control than what they already had in Eden it caused the world to fall apart can you just think about one of Jesus most famous stories the parable of the prodigal son who, who says to his father, I have to have it right now. I want it right now. Give me my inheritance right now. I want to spend it right now. I want to see the world right now. I want to have it all right now. Like, I can't wait. And so he takes his dad's money and he goes off into, into frivolous living and he goes to Vegas and he sees the sights and he sleeps with the women and he has the drinks and he makes the friends. But when the money runs out, life comes to an end. Here we are playing the same game, thinking that our father is somehow holding out on us when he's going, no, I have infinitely more for you than you could ever ask or imagine. I keep my promises. Money doesn't. Money lies to us. I just want for you to know, money lies to you. It lies to me too. It produces this sense of security and of control. It produces this sense of value and worth. You feel that? I feel it too. And it's real. I'm not saying that it's wrong. I'm saying that that's real. When someone walks in a room and they dress a certain way or they drive a certain car, it does something in the atmosphere. But that lies to you. That can't last. So what Jesus is being honest about in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't you see that this stuff is going to rust? Don't you see that someday some weird animal is going to eat it up? Like one day, all of this stuff, the nicest of cars, the coolest of clothes, the sweetest of trinkets. It's gonna be stuff nobody wants. Like, do you remember when Fitbits were a thing? Y'all remember that? When Fitbits were just so hot, like you had to have this little bracelet that had this little chip inside of it that counted your steps. And you're like, yeah, I'm gonna spend $100 for something to count my steps. And, it's, and you got the app and it's all the rage and you want it for Christmas and it's on your list and you're like getting different color bands that match your clothes. Who has a Fitbit now? Nobody, right? Your phone, your phone. If somebody has a Fitbit, you're lame, okay? So do you, don't you know your phone does that? Like it counts your steps for you already. Takes care of, like, this is the way that it goes. You, you remember when you had to have the iPhone 8? I'm gonna die if I don't have the iPhone 8. Now, that's, it's like probably, I don't know, I don't, at the bottom of a seat, it's a paperweight. You give it to your three-year-old, play with this. I don't care if you break it but you had to have it. And that's the way that money works. And God's going, I just wanna to try to align your heart with the way that the world is supposed to work. Generosity breaks wealth's God-displacing grip on your life. Think about this for a second. When you give money away, 
money releases its grip on you. This is a psychological, spiritual reality. Generosity is an antidote to fighting greed. It calibrates us for, from our need for control. Generosity, this, this one is so good. It allows God to be God again in your life. Do you know one of the great challenges with living in this modern world? It's, it's that we live in this illusion where we think that we do not need God. Do you know why the gospel is flourishing and always has flourished in places of poverty and brokenness? Because those kinds of people are keenly aware of their desperate need for God. You and I will live most of our lives and spend most of our days with very little awareness for how desperately we need God. If we get sick, we go to the doctor. If we're hungry, we go to the grocery store. If our car breaks down, we take it to the shop. If we lose our job, we put our resume on LinkedIn. And all of that is great and fine, but what it insulates you from is need, and the, it, it makes the enemy put you exactly where he wants you. Exactly where he wants you. Most of you are living in this delusional reality today. You do not think that you need God because it's not in God we trust. It's in money we trust. My bank account I trust. My savings account I trust. What generosity does is it loosens your grip and it allows God to be God again in your life for him to be your provider and for him to meet your needs for him to prove to be faithful for him, for you to have to actually trust him like what an insane thought of actually trusting God to give us this day our daily bread do you want to know the joy and the reality of God miraculously coming through for you of showing up in a way that could not be explained apart from the supernatural hand of God Step into generosity to the point that he has to meet a need that you have in your life. Watch him prove himself to be faithful. This is the story of Christianity. The gospel message moves forward on the backs of, of gospel patrons. I'm going to say that again. The gospel message moves forward on the backs of gospel patrons. People have sold homes and cars and emptied retirement accounts and sold off stock for the kingdom of Jesus to advance. This has been happening for thousands of years. Happened in the early church, Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. For they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as, as any had need. Thus Joseph, who also was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. They took this money, these assets, these things, and they literally sold it off sold it off. They put themselves from a place of excess into a place of need to see the gospel move forward. This was illogical generosity, stuff that just didn't make sense, that didn't add up, and this is how the early church moved forward. This is the reality today, that God is not just looking for people to send his message to. He is looking for people to send his message through, not just gospel proclaimers like me, gospel patrons who will finance and fund the kingdom moving forward. Luke chapter eight, verse one. 
Soon afterward, he went on through, I love this passage of scripture. He went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him. Now, this is the part you may have never caught before. I love this part. Ladies, you're gonna love this. Come with me on this. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Harold's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. So give this picture. Jesus traveling around, much as you think about the story of the Bible, story of the Gospels with his 12 boys, his 12 homies, He's performing miracles, he's casting out demons, he's preaching messages, and he's got his boys with them. They're teenagers, so they eat. They eat a lot, a lot of food, and they, they're homeless. They don't have anywhere to stay, so they're gonna find places to stay. And the Bible says that there's these women, these three boss babes, okay? And they are financing and funding the ministry of Jesus and his boys. They're putting the team on their back to see the gospel advance. And these ladies, they get their name in the book. They're in the story, not because they preached or made disciples or performed a miracle or set up some ministry program, but because they were patrons, funders and financers of the kingdom of God. And their names are in the book, in the story Jesus traveling with his boys, but there they are. They traveled with Jesus' entourage. You can find these women at the cross watching the crucifixion. You can find these women at the tomb wrapping Jesus' body with ointment and spices. And you can find these, Jesus, these women where? At Jesus' resurrection. Who's there when Jesus appears? Who gets to see him first? Mary Magdalene, one of his gospel patrons. Radical gospel proclamation requires radical gospel patrons. At the end of Romans, which is Paul's like Magna Carta, in Romans 16, he goes into a thank you list, which he lists 27 people. But who does he mention first? I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Synchria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many, and of myself as well. Phoebe is a gospel patron, someone who funded gospel ministry. At times in Paul's ministry, Paul would be a tent maker, and he would say, I don't want anybody to say that cliche, bogus stuff about me, that I'm just in it for the money, and so I'm going to make tents, work with my own two hands, not ask for gold or silver from anybody else be a tent maker. But at other times, a Phoebe would come along. And a Phoebe would go, you know what, Paul, you're pretty good at making tents, but do you know what you're really good at? Writing the Bible, preaching, starting churches, declaring the gospel in the places that Jesus' name hasn't even yet been named. And so let's let you do that, and I'm going to throw fuel on the fire of the kingdom. So Phoebe comes along, she removes the barriers for new churches to get started and for the gospel to go where it has not been yet. God works through partnership. You see, the lie that God would love to tell me as your pastor is that it all depends on me. 
It all depends upon how much money I can raise. It all depends upon what building I can find. It all depends upon what strategy I can put together. It all depends upon how good I can preach. It all depends upon how good of a strategy I can come up with. Like I lay awake at night believing the lie that, that the future of our church depends upon me. That's what the enemy loves to tell me. But then in God's grace, he reminds me that it doesn't that it doesn't depend upon me, that my job is obedience and to be faithful to do what he's called me to do and to trust the body of Christ at large to play its part, that it doesn't depend on, but I mean, at times it does. At times it feels like it does. At times I'm like, maybe I should go be a tent maker. Maybe I should just figure out some innovative business solution to fund ministry in a dynamic way so that we don't even have to worry about money talks anymore. Maybe I just figure this thing out. And the enemy loves to tell me those lies, but you know, the enemy loves to tell you lies too. The enemy loves to tell business people that they're somehow second class in the kingdom of God. That somehow because you're not a preacher or not on a stage like this, that you're second class in the kingdom. And so you can't do all that maybe Joey's doing for the kingdom. And so you should just live your life for the world instead. That's a lie from the pit of hell. We are on the same team, different parts to play, but the same mission. And I desperately need you as much as you might think that the gospel needs me. The Bible says that patrons, people together, fund ministry for gospel proclamation and for the advancement of the kingdom to the ends of the earth. So let's do it tonight. Let's just get very practical. Let's just talk about like how much, okay? Like where do you start? What do I give? Where does this begin? Um, I am a believer in the principle of the tithe. Now, I know that some people are like, listen, Joey, tithe, that's an Old Testament covenant principle. It's not applicable in the New Testament. Jesus actually does affirm the tithe, but let's just go with that logic. Let's just go, I'm, I'm all for it. Anybody who wants to ab abandon the tithe, which the tithe is the first 10% of your income, the first fruits of your labor, first 10% to your local church, to the house of God, that's what the tithe is. But let's just abandon that and let's just go with New Testament generosity. I would love to do that. Let's do that. Because New Testament generosity in almost every place that we see it isn't 10%, it's 100%. It's the little boy gave all his Lunchable. It's the widow gave both mites. She didn't hold one back. It's I gave my property. I sold the field and I gave it to the church. You know, the one place where we don't see 100% given is in Acts chapter five in the story of Ananias and Sapphira, this one couple who sold a piece of land, kept a part of it from themselves, didn't give 100% and they died. <laughs> Just dropped dead immediately. So listen, anybody who wants to abandon the tithe and go with the New Testament principle of giving and give 100%, I'm all in. But I do believe that the tithe, that starting with the first 10% of your income is a great place to start. And I believe that that should be the starting point, not the ending point. Like if the conversation on tithing is that we're in this new covenant, like, like just think about how crazy this is. So the new covenant is a better covenant with a better promise, with a better inheritance. In the old covenant, we had to make sacrifices and we had to obey the law and keep the law. And, you know, maybe we were going to get it in the end. But in the new covenant, we can have a sureness of salvation, certainty of faith. We get the spirit of God living within us. He doesn't write the law on tablets, but he writes it in our heart. He comes to reside within us. And in the new covenant, we sacrifice lambs. And in the new covenant, the old covenant we sacrifice lambs in the new covenant God sacrifices his son so I get it in this new and better better covenant what God would probably want me to do to honor that is like lower the amount that I give him like I should probably back that thing down from 10% to like 3.5 so that I could go to Longhorns on Tuesday 
Like it just, it, it doesn't make sense. Like this should be the starting point. And I, I, I know you might think, man, 10%, that sounds like so much. And I'm just going, well, 100% of it is God's. How crazy is it that he lets us keep 90? When 100% of it is his. And he's going, would you just start to trust me with this and not see if I am faithful? I love what C.S. Lewis says about amount. He says, I do not believe one can settle how much he ought to give, I'm afraid. The only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. And I'll just be real with you. My wife and I, we're having real conversations about this right now. What do we say no to? What do we go without? What trip don't we take? What upgrade don't we make? What investment do we not pursue? Do we not stop a side hustle that we would love to stop doing for the sake of being able to give more? Like we're having those conversations right now because we don't ever want to feel like we've just stagnated in generosity, that we've just gotten comfortable, that it's so predictable that we don't allow God to grab our hearts. You know, generosity is golden because it will be rewarded in heaven, I promise you that. Luke 16, 9, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. You see, a lot of people use money here on the planet to make friends for themselves, attract a spouse, to seem like they're fun, to fit in. But God says that there's a way to use generosity to store up for yourself treasures in heaven, friends in heaven, who are going to go, if you wouldn't have given, if you wouldn't have been generous with your money and your time and your home and your second house and your boat and your cars and, and everything that you had, I might not be here right now. But through your generosity, I got a picture for the gospel. And so now you're my eternal friend. And I just wonder, are you gonna have anybody who walks up to you in heaven and says, thank you for investing because I wouldn't be here without it? Are you gonna have friends at the banquet table? I love this um, thinking about this thought of getting to heaven and when pastor talks about it and everybody thinks about their mansion in heaven and so you get there at the gates and you're like, all right, all right. And St. Peter, he's standing there and you're like, show me, like what's it gonna be like? Like show me, is it open concept? Is it, you know, the kitchen table island? Like how big are we talking? Do I got a pool in the backyard that we can also do baptisms in? Like is there a little papa green? Like, like show me, like what is it? Like where is it? And he walks you up and it's just this like shack little shack here you go tosses you the keys it's awesome right enjoy Peter what's going on I thought that you know I was storing up for myself treasures in heaven and I thought I was gonna get this mansion and he goes well you know we built it with everything that you sent ahead everything that you invested that's what we used to to build this and so that's that's all that there is you see, contrary to popular belief, heaven is not going to be this static place of perfection where you sit on clouds and play a harp. It's not what it's going to be like. It's going to be a place of, like, real economy and real value. There are going to be, like, real homes. There's going to be real status. There are going to be real levels of experience that some people have and some people don't have. And it will be based upon what you give, what you do, the level of obedience that you walk in. Like, that's real. That's a way better, biblically robust version of heaven than, oh, it's just going to be the same for all of us. It's not. It's not, it's going to be much different. God will greatly honor those who are faithful to him. Bottom line, and I just want for you to know that tonight. 
First Timothy chapter six, verse 17 says this, command those who are rich in the present world to be, not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Don't believe me, believe the Bible. There's a way to store up for yourself this thing that is certain and that is sure and that is actually life. That doesn't disappoint, that doesn't dull or fade. Now, Timothy says the rich in this present world, the rich in this present world, not the rich in America, not the rich in Atlanta, not the rich in Sandy Springs, the rich in this world. It's really hard for you to get a feel tonight for how wealthy we really are because we are oh so wealthy in the day and age that we live in. If you make $15,000 a year, you're in the top 10% of global income earners. If you make $50,000 a year, you are in the top 2% of all income earners in the world for all time, for all time. So the great majority of us tonight, we are rich in this present world. So not because I want to, but because the Bible tells me to, I just command you to be generous and to share, to store up for yourself what this world cannot take from you. You know, you can do three things with your life. You can wreck it with sin. You can waste it with selfishness, or you can lay it down with sacrifice. I don't want for us to get over tonight what we've been given in Jesus, how good he's been to us. I don't wanna be professional about this or calculated or play it cute. I want us to be those wild people of faith who believe that God honors his people, who believe that everything that we lay down in service to Christ will be paid back to us tenfold at the resurrection of the just. Let's not stay where we're at. Let's make moves in this. You know, there are always three ways that you can give. You can give in the offering box. You can text the QR code that we put up every week. You can um, go online and you can give. And I just wanna challenge you, what's your, what's your giving step tonight? How does generosity need to multiply in your life? Maybe for you, what you need to do is you need to set up recurring giving. That is one of the most helpful things that you could do for us, especially in this season. Maybe you need to go in and you need to evaluate the reality that you've not been generously giving. You've just been tipping God. This is a, this is a real reality where we tip God. Usually in the West, it's about a hundred bucks, maybe 200 bucks if you're a couple and it's just enough to not make you feel guilty. But in your heart, you know, you're not being generous. Maybe your step tonight is, you do need to take some sacrificial step of generosity to sow into the kingdom in a really big way. Maybe you need to pray about that. Maybe you need to take a step tonight to pursue financial freedom and you need to go to base camp so that you can get into Financial Peace University so that you can be set free from the bondage of the world, being stopped so tethered to the here and now and set free to pursue life in the kingdom of God. God, he so desperately wants generosity for your heart tonight, for who it will turn you into, for what it will do for you in the long run, for the way that it will multiply his kingdom to the ends of the world.